Hello, humans, hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, talking to you from lovely AM 950 from the bunker in Eden Prairie. I am live. This is not recorded whatsoever. I'm thrilled to be back talking to you live, human to human. How are you today? How are you today? If you're in Minnesota listening to this, you got to be happy because it's a nice day out followed by another nice day. It's unbelievable because two weeks ago this time I was wearing my winter coat and my winter boots. So there you go. We have a great show. We have live guests, you know, as compared to dead guests. We've got live guests here in the studio with me, which I'm going to they curate an amazing podcast, The Modern White Man, and you're going to love listening to these two young idealists. Uh, I'm also going to feature an idealist who has shown up on all of our media across the country this week. I am speaking of Chris Small, who succeeded in organizing an Amazon warehouse in uh, New York City. Um, you know, one of the one of two warehouses, two locations that Amazon is organized that Amazon has to face unions. Then, if we have time, um, we're going to talk about the continuing oppression of families with transgender children by Texas Child Protection Authorities. Um, an important court ruling came out yesterday. Although I, I've gone to three sources and I don't know if I fully understand the ruling, but we can get into that. And finally, if we have time for my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. You know, I do that every every week. And because I am live. Remember, I've said that now 13 times. Because I'm live, you can give us a call at 952-946-6205. I would love to hear from you. But we're going to begin with the two live idealists I have here in the studio with me. I have I have uh, Ken Lawrence and Paul Johnson with me. They are the creators and the curators of an amazing podcast, The Modern White Man. And uh, I know it's amazing in part because I was just on the podcast with them. But that's how I got to know about their work and that's why I have them here. Now, okay, now, Ken and Paul, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Doing wonderful. Thank you for having us, Ellie. It's a pleasure. Oh, well, I'm just thrilled. Yeah, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having us here. <laughs> Obviously, I'm nervous. So, <laughs> oh, don't be nervous. Come on, come on. And and I mean, and thanks for driving all the way out to Eden Prairie. You know, the trek. Hey, it's beautiful weather, like you said. So, getting outside <laughs> in any way this time of year. All right. So, I want to, uh, and listeners, guess what? You can call in and you can talk to our guests. Again, number nine five two. Nine four six six two zero five. Let's begin with the podcast, the Modern White Man. What is it about? How and how did it come about? And you know, and maybe you can one of you can explain how the two of you even know each other and where how how this all came about. Yeah, so the the Modern White Man, Paul and I had both worked in the nonprofit industry for years, and what that podcast is about is we discuss how to be a white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands our role in creating equity. And how the need for this came about was really twofold. The first was my own personal lived experiences being in the nonprofits for so many years, being in meetings, kind of thinking, what really is my role? When should I speak up? Can I even be a leader in this industry working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, being a 
cisgender, heterosexual, white male? Like do we even need leaders like that in this space? So really over the years, just my internal experiences with those questions – and then also I, I would go into organizations and I would give diversity, equity, and inclusion presentations and I'd partner with black, indigenous, people of color. And always in these presentations, you know, first off, the numerically, the number of white men in the room were always the lowest. And then they were always the, the most quiet. And then at the end, we'd always stick around for questions and white men would always come up to me directly. They'd single me out and almost like in a whisper and be like, hey, you know, I, I didn't know how to ask this. I didn't know how to right. say this, but you know, what about this and wh what does it mean for me? And so there's just this this like bottled up like I think it's angst, it's it's uncertainty and it's fear really right. about what it means – what all this diversity, equity and inclusion work means for me. So – uh, I, I was like, all right, I want to – so it all accumulated with – as I was doing this personal development work, I was reading a book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Highly recommend the book and there was like – it's rare to, to read a line that is almost an epiphany level and, I, and the line was, when we see mutually respectful relationships between people of color and whites, it's typically due to – each individual – tangible results from each individual's identity process. And I was like, oh my gosh, white men need to go through an identity process. How does our group membership as being white men impact our identities? And the reason that white men don't do that a lot is because we don't really have to unless it's an intentional effort. You know, women, people of color, non-binary folks, they all have experiences throughout their life that's like, huh, my group membership, you know, impacts me in this way. And, and so I was like, all right, I, I want to create some kind of a group. I want to address this. I want to provide a space for white men to be able to do this identity work, to have a positive anti-racist, anti-sexist identity. I reached out to Paul. He and I were on the board of a nonprofit together. We had helped each other out with a few initiatives. And he was the only person in my mind where I was like, who would do this with me? So luckily he said yes, because I don't, I didn't have a backup plan. And, and that's, so we've been live for about a year and a half and it's been going great. And accumulating with you as a fantastic guest, as you said. So now we're bringing on guests and just learning from different people. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, and listeners, I've got to tell you, and we're going to get the we'll get the the con the sync so that you can find this uh, podcast. But I have to tell you, I've been on a number of podcasts, um, and and uh, actually want to be on as many as possible for you know my idealism. But I've got to tell you, the Modern White Man is the most professional podcast I've been on. I mm -hmm. mean, these two guys are very very good at what they do. Paul, what you know, what do you think about the podcast and, and what's your motivation about being involved? Yeah. I mean, when Ken came to me, it was an easy yes. It, he, <clears throat> he really helped me see that I have been going through identity process for a number of years now, probably, you know, especially 10 years being very intentional about learning about racism and sexism and the history of our country. But what happened to me personally was I just really got stuck in a lot of shame because naturally when you learn about, what white people have done and specifically white men have done to this country, to people in this country, you immediately get this deep sense of guilt and shame. And I really got stuck in that, uh, that headspace. Yep. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, it, it, what I learned later though, in the identity process, that, that is a natural stage or status of that identity process. And what, 
what makes the modern white man so uh, inspiring for me personally is that I don't need to stay there, that there is actually an ideal, right? There is a future state where we can get to as white men where we actually – our identity is actually inextricably linked to being anti-racist and anti-sexist. So you know, when I was in that sort of deep sense, you know, deep place of shame, I was still doing the kind of anti-racist work and anti-sexist work. But I was doing it from a place of just really feeling really crappy, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term. Like I didn't right. feel good about myself. <laughs> I didn't feel good about white men. Um, and that really impacted then my relationships with other white people and with people of color in a negative way. But now with this 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 uh, ability to have an ideal state of I can actually have a positive identity, that changes everything in the work that I do. So I'm going to ask a personal question. Can I ask how old you guys are? Yeah, I am. I had to think for a second. I think I'm 36. 30, Paul's 36. 33 for me. 33. And the reason I ask this, okay, is that, you know, I do a lot of consulting with companies. And, um, and well, first of all, I think I told you on the podcast, I believe that 98% of all people have good empathetic hearts. All right. I mean, I do 2% total sociopath. My listeners have heard this multiple times. Okay? <laughs> I, I agree with you, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're afraid as you've been speaking and all that. But when I do my consulting and I go into an organization, they want, you know, we want to become more inclusive. We want to become more diverse, equitable. It's usually – there are naysayers, okay, the people that are resistant to it. And they usually are older white men with power, okay? And what I tell my clients – why it's important that we push back against the naysayers because the naysayers aren't going to be around all that long. I keep telling them it's even the white younger people want to work in diverse places. They do not want to go into places that are homogene- you know, homogeneous. They want to go to places where there are all kinds of people, all color- skin colors, you know, uh, orientations and all of that type of thing. Am, am I right? I mean is that what you find with your cohorts? One hundred percent. And, and you know, Paul and I are millennials and it's even more so with Gen Z. And I do a lot of work with Gen Zers as well. Yeah. And when I see these high schoolers and college age students, it's even more so. Like I used to think that our millennial group was, you know, really progressive and starting to think ahead about these diverse spaces and, and how that is a positive impact on us. You know, it's almost like we're the – we start to realize that – We've been stolen of relationships and experiences with people who are yeah. different than us because of these hierarchies that have been seeped into our societies and the separation that has yeah. been because of that. And Gen Zers are like a whole new thing. So that's one of the things I tell companies as well is like, hey, if we want to, if you want to attract some small or, or some new young talent, you're going to have to really make this important. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, it's so incredibly important. It really is. All right. Well, listen, uh, listeners, we're going to take a break. If you want to call and talk to these remarkable young idealists, please give us a call at 952-946-6205. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, go visit my website at elliekrug.com. And when we come back, the very first thing we'll do is we'll make sure you know where to find the modern white man, although I bet some of you have been on Google as we've been speaking. We'll be back in a second.
And we're back. LA 2.0 Radio. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, you're seeing me still do my seat dancing. Um, I have here in the in the studio with me, and I cannot tell you how thrilling it is to be able to say that um, because it's been a long time since I've had live guests. Two men, Ken Lawrence and Paul Johnson, they are the creators and the curators of the Modern White Man podcast. Before we go any further, gentlemen, where can my listeners find the modern white man when they're not listening to LE 2.0 radio? You can find it on every major podcast platform. So wherever you listen to your podcasts, it should be there. Also, we have a website themodernwhiteman.com, where we write blog posts. We'd like to write more. That's a goal of ours, New Year's resolution. But we have a lot more about our work. And now you can check out our videos with guests on our YouTube channel. So we're, we're if you Googled Modern White Man, it should pop up. Okay, good. That's great. That's great. Now, Paul, um, you wanted to talk a little bit more about older white color men. Yeah, and just kind of white men in general across the generations. And just, you know, I think as white folks, we have to face and, and kind of reckon with the, this um, this deep-seated fear that we I think we've all inherited over time through generations. And yeah, this isn't just older white men. This is all generations. that, And the fear really comes from loss, right? When we talk about, you know, especially organizations or communities becoming more diverse, we, we I, think, I think we all have this sort of a lot of times unconscious fear that we're going to lose something when this happens, right? Right. right. Um, and so we, what happens is that reflexive – protection, protection of what we have and who we are. Um, and a lot of times protection can turn into um, backlash, right? So, well, I, And aggression. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think what's really, really important, what I want to impart on, our, on these, you know, the listeners and what we do in our podcast is we really need to understand how being anti-racism actually benefits us as white folks, because otherwise we see it as a zero-sum game where right. other people get something and we lose something. That's just not. That's just not true. It feels that way because maybe we lose money or power or a position in our company, and it feels like we're losing something. But we need to see that we're all interconnected, and this is about this is about community gains, right? right. And then even and it seems counterintuitive to th- to think kind of selfishly, like what do I gain from being anti-racist, being anti-sexist, and and companies being more diverse? And but you know, I think there is this. Still, this fear of you know um, that these changes mean that I that I lose something, and I think for, uh, probably for older white men, you know, at the end of you know your careers, that that you've worked hard for a long period of time, and at this point, you don't want to you don't want to lose anything or give anything up, and you're proud of your legacy. But it's it is really important to understand how we all we all win when when this happens. Well, you know, I keep thinking of the uh, small family owned business in rural uh, Minnesota, you know, maybe they have 50 employees, all of them are white, but the, 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 the dad who owns the company wants to pass it on down to his son or his daughter and, you know, and wants the legacy to continue and, of course, the, you know, the livelihood and all of that stuff. But what's happening in rural Minnesota right now is that young people, workers, they're not sticking around. They're going to the bigger city. And who's coming instead? People who are foreign-born. People who are born in, you know, in south of the United States. People born over in Africa, a continent, you know. And they're coming to rural Minnesota. 
And if you don't have a if you don't have a a, a mindset about wanting to be broad minded about wanting to understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know where you'd be a welcoming workplace to these people. Okay, quotation marks around these people. Um, your company's not going to survive. And I don't think there's a lot of people that understand that. Yeah, you know? and I think people need to understand too that you just it's you just can't be anti-racist without sacrificing something as, as a white person. Because as white folks, we have gained so many advantages and we have so much more. So if we want to get to it, an equity means some people get more than others. That's what equity means. Equality means everyone gets the same thing. Equity means some people get more than others. So that means that we might lose out on some things, and it might mean that we have to sacrifice some things. And it's just it's just a natural reality of the work that you do with being anti-racist. And what we talk about on the podcast, though, I think is what is important is to redefine what sacrifice is. Because, yes, in the, in the traditional sense, we might be sacrificing some things. But like you said, Paul, to your really important point, we're gaining so much more. So it's a mental shift. So, yes, there are some sacrifices there, but what you're giving up, you gain so much more. And it's almost like this men- mentality that we have to change as to what makes one happy. Right. More money, more power, more more this or that, or that power is finite or leadership right. positions are finite. And we have to change that mentality because it sacrifice something, sure, but what we get out of it is just so much bigger. But yeah, and I, I, I'm uh, uh, because I, I'm trying to imagine me in a room using words like sacrifice or give up those phrases, and the reaction that older white men might have. And I think that you know the sacrifice quotation mark could be as simple as the older white man with power doesn't get to have a say on who the new HR director is, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, and so now somebody else is going to make that decision and now it's going to be somebody they would not have chosen, but it's going to be somebody who's going to help bring the, com- the company along. Yeah. That's, that's a sacrifice, but it's not like, you know, we're, you're telling the older white man you, you're going to lose $50,000 exactly. a year. You know? Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, all right, well, uh, a couple more things, all right? So what, for the two of you, what's the most important thing that you've learned um, doing the podcast? I I just the, the mental shift for me from going from feeling this in this this place of you know what's the point? My identity as a white man is just I, I have no positive feelings about it to to a, a hopeful um, mindset and and I also I you know I'm very passionate about leadership. I have a master's degree in leadership, and what this podcast and this work has allowed me to do is see the hope and try to inspire other white men to, to, you know, sometimes that means giving up your power or leadership abilities, but sometimes it's keeping it. But then what do you do with it? That's, that's what I'm so interested about leadership is there's so much potential for good and so much potential for bad. And the history of white men is overwhelmingly bad, right? And the way we've used power in our leadership, but the future can be so much different that we leverage our power that we do inherently have Mm -hmm just by the color of our skin, just by our, our gender expression and sex, to use it for good with, with doing DEI work. Oh, God, I love that. What have you learned, Ken? I'll give two. One on the tangible tool set side. So um, I would give The Ladder of Empowerment by Tima Okun. For those of you out there who want to look that up, The Ladder of Empowerment, it really shows 
each step status that every single individual goes to when they start to consider race and the differences and then eventually to be an anti-racist. Everybody is on this if they choose to or not. You just might get stuck in like be like me, your defensive deni- uh, defensiveness, denial, guilt, shame. But super helpful framework because it helps us see where we might be at what we want to work at and what we're eventually aiming to be. And then the second one to kind of piggyback on what Paul was saying is that, you know, when, when I think, or I know because white men have told me this, but when they hear this, it's like the initial reaction is like, oh, you're doing this because you just want to tell white men they're bad, they're oppressors, everything they're bad. Like even Paul to the point, like I wouldn't say white men – the history is overwhelmingly bad. Like there's a, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff for equity, but white men have been doing really good things along the line too. But the, what I would say is that that is not what we're doing here. It's the opposite. You go through this process, you go through the tough situations, you go through the tough conversations to eventually have a better positive identity. It makes you feel so much better. So like my big takeaway is like, I just feel really like a lot like really good like a lot better about my identity a lot better about myself this idea of giving things up like what sacrifices are don't seem like sacrifices to me because i'm gaining so much and like literally i just feel so much better and i want white men to to kind of feel that it's almost like a relief you're like oh my gosh like yeah i can do some really good things to make some equity in, in 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 society Oh boy, we need like uh, we need to uh, duplicate the two of you by the millions. <laughs> get you, you're kind. Get you out there. So um, you know that I always ask uh, guests on my show what's made them an idealist. Okay, so Paul, what what made you an idealist? Because uh, there's without, I had no idea when I came on your podcast that you were idealistic, but it became very clear to me as we interacted with each other that you were. So Paul, what made you an idealist? For me, I, I felt like I had no choice but to be an idealist. I think I've naturally been uh, – naturally am an idealist, but but I, I needed to have hope because hope mm-hmm. is what motivates people. Hope is what keeps people going, mm-hmm. right? And I did experience a time years ago where I was burning out and I was ready to just say, you know, I'm done. I just don't want to do this work. It's too hard. I, I feel too right. bad about myself. And as white folks, right, we have that option, especially white men. We have that option to say, no, I'm done. Right. right. Other folks do not have the option. I'm just going right? to look out for me and mine. Exactly. Yep. So, yep. but what keeps me going, what keeps me having energy and that, that positive outlook is this, this idealist view that white men can play a really positive role uh, in, in DEI work. And we need to be obviously very careful about that ro- role is and be very discerning and sit back and learn from people of color and, and women and, and non-binary folks and folks like you, Ellie, and, and say, what, what do we, you know, tell us what we're doing wrong and be open to that feedback. Um, and also not relying on folks, you know, to tell us those things. We need to educate ourselves, right? Because right. it can be exhausting for other people to teach white men all the time, right? It's not their job. It's our job to educate ourselves. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what, what uh, has worked for me to, to, you know, lean into idealism. I, I love it. And Ken, what made you an idealist? You know, ever since I was a kid, that I just, it's just kind of been natural and kind of weird. I remember laying in bed just thinking, why am I so lucky all the time? And, and wow. you know, I, I grew up uh, very privileged into a private high school, uh, all male, military, Catholic, you know, uh, type of situation where, you know, primarily all white. 
and I was always like, why me? Why am I so lucky? I have no no um, real problems, and so many people do. Uh, it was just natural. And I always thought that I joined the Peace Corps after college. Yeah. I lived in Guinea, West Africa for about two and a half years, and you live without electricity for that long, and you really go deep in your thoughts. Like you can only read and you know write and dance by yourself so much. So like thinking so deeply about what's important mm-hmm. to me has only really increased my idealism, and it, that w- those are really really tough moments too but paid off well i tell you um the two of you i uh i am here for you if there's anything i can ever do to help your podcast get more notoriety for the two of you to go and and do the work that you're doing okay i am just so grateful that the two of you exist okay Thank you, Ellie. We really appreciate that. You as well. So I feel so fortunate we made this connection with you. So well, thank you. Well, thanks. All right. Well, listeners, um, I just uh, this is Ken uh, Lawrence and uh, Paul Johnson from the Modern White Man. Go check out their podcast because it is a phenomenal podcast. That's for sure. You've already gotten a taste of how great it is. And so. Um, All right, well, uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to do our featured idealist of the week, and then I'll have a little bit of time to talk about my work as an idealist. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on the lovely AM 950. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio Live. <laughs> oh, my God. Ken Lawrence and Paul Johnson, the Modern White Man podcast. I, I could have sat and talked with these two gentlemen, not for one show, but for two shows, maybe three shows. Uh, and they, you know what? They give me hope. They give me immense hope, immense hope for the future. Okay, um, let me give you. Uh, let's go in and dive into our featured idealist this, idealist this week. It's been I've gone a couple of weeks without a featured idealist, and and so he's an emerging idealist who is creating a national platform around labor rights and the importance of unions. I'm talking about Chris Smalls, who is in his younger thirties, just like the gentleman we just had here. He was born and raised in Hackensack, New Jersey. Attended high school and community college there. Raised by a single mom. And at first, he wanted to be a rap musician and uh, toured a little bit with another rapper. But eventually, he left that, um, started working at Walmart and Home Depot. He has three kids, um, two of whom are twins. And he eventually um, gained warehouse experience at FedEx and Target. In 2015, Amazon, you know Amazon, hired Chris Small, first as a picker. Three years later, Amazon made him an assistant manager. So obviously, Amazon itself saw that Chris Small had a lot of potential. Fast forward to March 2020. We've got the pandemic coming in. And Small and another Amazon employee organized a walkout to protect Amazon workers over the way Amazon's COVID policies were so lax. Small was fired for that. Okay, He, they, he, he was fired for that. And then he later filed a lawsuit against Amazon over violating health laws during the pandemic. 
Uh, that suit is still ongoing as far as I know, but that suit also attracted the attention of New York Attorney General Letitia James, who also sued Amazon. I mean, okay. <laughs> as uh, Chris Small's uh, Amazon lawsuit was going on, he founded a worker activist group called, quote, the Congress of Essential Workers. I love that. I do. The Congress of Essential Workers. And from there, Small founded uh, the Amazon Labor Union, the ALU, in April of 2021. And not long after the initial walkout in March of 2020, Amazon's legal counsel, okay, gave Jeff Bezos a briefing, okay, because, you know, what what do we we got? What's going on? You know, with our people and all that stuff. So they bring in the lawyers, and the lawyers give a briefing. And in that briefing, the lawyer describes Chris Small as quote not smart or articulate. And in a second, we're going to play a clip, and you'll be able to see how accurate he was or inaccurate he was about that. But obviously, calling a black man not smart or articulate sounds like a racist smear, although the lawyer, Amazon's lawyer, claims later on that he didn't know that Chris Small was black. So Chris Small goes to try and organize a couple of warehouses uh, that Amazon has. One of those warehouses um, uh, was on Staten Island. And unfortunately, uh, earlier this month on May 2nd, that, that warehouse voted against unionizing. However, there was another warehouse, uh, and that uh, JFK eight, and on April one, twenty twenty, that warehouse voted in favor of unionizing at uh, twenty two thousand six hundred and fifty four to two thousand one hundred and thirty one. A little close, but he got it. Okay, and uh, um, and Small later on went to say we we did whatever it took to connect with these workers. And then he said, I hope that everybody's paying attention now because a lot of people doubted us. And I'm going to play a clip right now of Chris Small talking uh, with um, Lindsey Graham at a hearing this week, okay, Uh, for whatever, the Senate Labor Committee. Uh, And uh, you're going to hear what Lindsey – Lindsey's going to be the first thing you're going to hear and then you're going to hear Chris Small response and listen to how smart. This guy is Chris. The idea that you can only get a government contract if you promise to be neutral is ridiculous. Boeing is in South Carolina making the 787. There's been efforts to unionize Boeing. They lose. The people in that plant will make that decision. The idea that Boeing can't argue the merits of a right to work environment for their business is ridiculous, and I think patently illegal. This is a heavy-handed approach, the most radical agenda in my lifetime, and it should be carried out at the ballot box, and it will be. If we take this body back, this demonization of individual companies that are subject to the law will cease. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. Um, first off, you know, you're, it sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this, these companies operate. And if we're not protected, and if the process 
for when we hold these companies accountable, it's not working for us, then that's not what, that's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers who make these companies go. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, in the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that behalf. And you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. Wow. Wow. You know, so smart because it is really not a red or a blue thing. It's not a conservative or a liberal thing, just like Chris Small said. It's just about the people. It's about the workers. And I just I, – I love his approach. I think it's a – I think it's disarming approach. And of course we heard, you know, Lindsey Graham saying, you know, when we take this place back, you know, no more demonizing of corporations. Everyone, when they take the place back, and I fear that they will, when they take it back, <laughs> it's not going to at all be pretty for our democracy to the extent that our democracy will still be around. Okay. All right. Well, listen, um, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Texas. Then we're going to talk about a little bit about my work and then we're going to be done. So I hope you're enjoying today's show. Uh, you can call me at 952-946-6205 if you want. This is going to be your last shot. Otherwise, uh, okay, we'll be back in a second. Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. Okay, uh, so I've got a little bit of time here. Uh, not a whole lot. So I, first I want to talk about what's going on in Texas. Uh, many of you know, I've talked about this before. And yes, I'm again talking about how transgender humans, particularly transgender kids, are being oppressed, uh, discriminated against, erased. Um, in our country. And so Texas, um, earlier this year, uh, Governor Greg Abbott, and then, um, well, he followed uh, the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton <clears throat> issued a letter in February declaring that gender-affirming surgical procedures for children and prescribing drugs that affect puberty uh, would be considered child abuse in Texas. Abbott got on that bandwagon and and then directed the Department of Family Protection in Texas to start investigating families that have transgender kids uh, who have undergone gender-affirming care. Now, by the way, I just – everyone here for the record, okay? There is no doctor in America that will perform gender confirmation surgery. That is turning an Audi into an innie or an innie into an Audi 
there's no doctor in America that's going to perform that on anybody that's younger than 18. Just, I'm just letting you know that, okay? Because the doctors know it's a one-way procedure and, by the way, they don't want to get sued by somebody who didn't have legal consent. So let's get that off the table. And so the other thing really is about getting puberty blockers so that uh, tra- transgender girls don't grow up with this voice, okay, um, or other kinds of affirming care uh, like some hormones and things of that nature. Now, Texas, um, there was – so this comes down, these two letters, these two directives from the governor and the attorney general in Texas. Then what do you know? Somebody drops a dime on a family and what do you know? The, the Texas Department of Family Protection Services starts investigating. That family got a lawyer. Thank God. They filed a lawsuit. They got an injunction against any kind of protection. So what came down yesterday, and I've got to tell you, I've looked at CNN, New York Times, and and, uh, the Dallas Times-Herald to try and really understand what this opinion is about. I still don't fully understand it. But what I get, what I get is that this judge in Texas said the family that's being investigated, that Department of Family Protection Child Services can't continue to investigate them. So that injunction is still, it sounds like, in place. But then the court seemed to say that they can go start investigating other families with transgender children. I mean, can you imagine you've got a kid who who started on hormones before all of this began, started on puberty blockers before all this began. Now the state has said, you know, and there's no no medical provider in Texas anymore that's giving any of this kind of treatment. So your kid can't get it. Maybe you're going to go across state lines to get a prescription, you know, and come back and live in Texas and, and all of that. Can you imagine the fear that these families have because child protection comes in, they say it's child abuse. What do they do? They take the kid out of there. They take the kid out of a family that's loving and supportive. Where are they going to put the kid? They're not going to put it with a fam- the child with a family that's loving and supportive of transgender people. Just trust me on that. This is Orwellian. This is incredible. This is wrong, wrong, wrong. And unfortunately, I have no doubt there'll be other states that'll be following this model. I, it, we need to love these kids, okay? And it is not child abuse to allow a child to live authentically. You know, and, and there, are, you know, there are standards around all of this care. It's not like willy-nilly, Okay. Doctors are not just like coming up with stuff. There are standards called the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH standards that govern how kids, how adults as well, transition genders. So anyway, okay, that's that. All right. Now let me in the four minutes I have left talk about my work as an idealist. And everyone, I've got to tell you, you know, my work is around trying to get past how we group and label other humans. My work is about how we need to open up our minds and change our perspectives about people who are different or other from us. But yet your, you know, you know, national diversity, equity and inclusion trainer Ellie Krug and your friend here on AM 950, I continue, continue to make assumptions about people, continue to make assumptions about people based on bits and pieces of what those people say to me. And you know what? 
I am continually being proven wrong. Case in point, I sat with a neighbor last night. You know, first time I ever really got to talk with her. And I would have guessed that, you know, based on the job that she has and and some of the things, I would have guessed that she was about as big, big a conservative as you might find. And yet, I find that she is a sister. She thinks very broadly about the world and about other. Very accepting, certainly very accepting of Ellie Krug. And we had what I thought might be a 15-minute conversation turns into two hours. We had this lovely, lovely conversation about how the world can be good, what needs to happen for it to change. And it just, again, reinforced for me, I I keep falling into the trap that, oh, I, I think I know everything I need to, to know about you. And then uh, this week, and I'm not going to get into the details of it, but I did a favor for some neighbors. And again... Somebody that I thought was not, you know, would certainly not be accepting of me, an older gentleman. Um, he gave me a kiss on the cheek as he was thanking me for the favor. Blew me away. Everyone, listen. We all have the capacity to change. We all have the capacity to view people as who they truly are and to be kind and compassionate to each other. We have that capacity. We just need to exercise all of that on a daily, regular basis. I mean, that is the nature of my work. But I, even me, I fall into these traps and I have to relearn important lessons about not assuming anything about anyone until you get to know them. Okay, well, listen, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, I think it's not a bad show. I want to do a big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who had to do a little bit of math today, but not a whole lot. And to you, my listeners, um, I appreciate it. I Next week, I might be live. I might be taped. I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out still. But please tell everybody about this show. Share about it, okay? Tweet about it. You know, Let the world know that this show exists. And please... Follow me. Go to my website, elliekrug.com. Sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. I have a new one coming out, hopefully within the next week. And in the meantime, go out and do some good. Be good to someone. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.